Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good morning, Team Crewlight community, and we're pleased to welcome you to a special broadcast episode that we wanted to put together to capture uh, some other sort of breaking um, news overseas developments that have happened over the last several days. Uh, I don't know if we're going to turn our series into like a breaking newscast or not, but we had spent time with Dr. Weber, Yuval Weber yesterday talking about some uh, headlines that were popping up from the war in Ukraine, but other things happen other places too. And over the weekend, in case you, uh, you people didn't see it, there was a, a fairly significant diplomatic development between Saudi Arabia and Iran, who have not had diplomatic relations for some time now, um, and has sort of uh, second order effects of that has been some sort of realignments of uh, alliances and uh, partnerships in that region overall. However, this weekend we had a picture of Iranian and Saudi diplomats in the room, and along with them was a Chinese diplomat who apparently had a, a part in this uh, renewal of diplomatic relations. So here to talk us through what happened, um, why it's significant, why why relations didn't exist previously, and now now they have been reestablished. We uh, welcome to his, I don't know how many episodes this is for Dr. Tarzi, it's been a lot, but we have Dr. Amin Tarzi, Director of Mineral Studies here at Krulak Center Marine Corps University, and uh, he's going to walk us through what happened. And uh, before we get into it, as always, always all opinions of such here, those of the individual, do not necessarily reflect the views of Krulak Center Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. So with that, Dr. Tarzi, welcome back to the broadcast. And We'll just get into uh, the relations were renewed over the weekend. Well, they they were severed at some point. So what happened um, that caused the uh, the diplomatic break in between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Um, and when did it happen? Thank you very much. And uh, greetings to all of our audiences uh, who will be looking at that and hearing it. First and foremost, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran and what we call core Middle East, that's the Arabian Peninsula, uh, including Israel, Yemen and all that, and then Iran, Syria, Iraq, uh, and sometimes Egypt. When you look at that that relationship, pretty much after the second Second World War, Iran and Saudi Arabia have been the two major players in there. In the early days, they were actually very much both on the U.S. camp. Uh, under the Nixon administration, they were they were the two pillars of stability, as as Richard Nixon would say. Uh, but we moved on from that since 1979, the, when the Islamic Revolution was successful in Iran, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran have always been very tumultuous, mainly because of ideological. And also here you have two countries that uh, looked at leadership of the Islamic world. Saudi Arabia, of course, uh, is, is where uh, the two holy places of Islam, the two most holiest, Mecca and Medina are. Uh, so it's the leader, natural leader of, of Islam, but specifically of Sunni Islam. Iran comes out with a whole new ideology, calling itself the Islamic revolution of Iran, trying to take leadership. And unlike the Saudi system, the Iranian system is a revolution to be exported. That word was used in the early 80s, that Iran actually wants its version of revolution to be exported. And of course, one of the biggest rivals and challenges and challengers of Tehran at this time is not other than Saudi Arabia. So it goes back, and I'm not going to go to all the incidents between them uh, that, that has happened, but this current uh, impasse began in, in uh, 2016, in January, when Saudi Arabia, against the 
many protests and the marshes of Iran uh, killed a, a, a very senior Shia cleric by the name of Nimr Batal and Nimr. Uh, he was killed along with 46 others uh, on charges of sedition, on charges of, of the, so Eastern province of Saudi Arabia, that is the province where actually a lot of the oil are, uh, has a very, very large uh, population of Shia, the Ashari Shia, 12 Shia, which is the same uh, Shiaism that's, that's uh, followed by the Iranians. So, uh, and, and Bakr al-Nibir was a very famous, at sometimes he called for uh, independence of the Eastern province. Sometimes he called for more rights for the Shia majority, uh, minority uh, in Saudi Arabia and so on and so forth. But short story is, in January, Saudi Arabia uh, kills him. And, and that starts a protest in Iran. Attacks are carried out against uh, Iran's, uh, sorry, Saudi embassy in Tehran and Saudi consulate in Mashhad. They are burned by mobs. And relationships are severed. So that's, that's, so 2016 until now. Now, what happens in between 2016 and until now is the Iranians actually become very belligerent against the Saudis. Uh, and the belligerency starts in the, in the Arabian Gulf uh, uh, and by hitting some Saudi vessels, Emirati vessels as well, and also other countries. Uh, this is a 2019 timeframe uh, after, after the United States withdraws from the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or GCPOA or Iran nuclear deal. The Iranians become very belligerent. They, they start hitting. Uh, but the biggest attack on Saudi Arabia is a cruise and missile attack on uh, Abtiq, which is a part of Aramco, Saudi Arabia's main oil company. Uh, the Iranians say that the Houthis in Yemen did that, but most analysts have believed that that was, if not directed and conducted by the Iranians, uh, it definitely was Iranian weapons. Uh, and, and the precision and the fact that the Saudi oil industry stopped for a while was a very, very major wake up for Saudi Arabia. It also showed Iran's long hand and specifically for coming from Yemen, because Iran supports the Houthis in there and Saudi Arabia supports the anti-Houthi movements. That made the Saudis very, very uncomfortable to be to say the least. Uh, the Saudis, uh, here comes in the United States. The Saudis had always looked at the United States for providing their security. Uh, when there was not much coming up, either in attacks on the on the ships, uh, and specifically after the attacks on Abtip, which was a direct missile and cruise missile attack on Saudi installations, specifically on their oil installations, uh, there was not much support coming from the United States, whether in case in, in the terms of uh, air defense, in terms of future mitigation measures, and also both the United. The United States, as well as some other European countries, were very critical of Saudi Arabia's policies in Yemen uh, for human rights violations and so on and so forth. So some people were not even selling them weapons. So for Saudi Arabia, this became an issue of, okay, the security of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is, is at risk, and those who we count on, led by the United States, is not there. And this is the key here. The Saudis stopped looking outside. Some people in the, in the region have called that lack of credibility in the United States message of providing security for these allies that were steadfast allies going back to the 1930s, at least uh, the meeting with, with uh, Saudi, first Saudi King uh, and, and, and uh, King Abdulaziz and 
President F. Roosevelt of the United States that was ongoing. So that's that's the nexus where Iranians through the sorry Saudis and Iranians through the good offices of Iraq. This is key. Iraq, not China. Iraq and to a lesser degree the Sultanate of Oman began a reconciliation talks uh, which began in, in around 2021, so about two years ago, and and this was mainly done through Iraq elsewhere uh, and the conversation was how to bring a rapprochement or a reconciliation between those two countries so uh, that's that's where where we are now what happens in december 2022 the chinese president uh, xi jinping visited riyadh where if you recall he was given an absolute more honor than perhaps anybody in saudi arabia where President Biden was really coldly received. Uh, if you also recall when President Biden was asking for the Saudis to increase oil production, they actually refused to do that. So the relationship with Washington is looking cooler, whereas uh, President Xi is being given literally a beyond the red carpet treatment. So that's December 22. And then after that, uh, you had a meeting uh, in China in, in February this year, so just last month, by President Raisi of Iran. So he goes, Raisi goes and meets President Xi in China. So somewhere between December and January, either, you know, we don't know exactly who requested China's mediation here, maybe both Riyadh and Tehran did. The surprise of all this, the fact that the two countries, Iran and Saudi Arabia, were talking, that was not a surprise, that the Iraqis were go-betweens and Omanis, but suddenly, as you mentioned in your opening, we have the Chinese basically, uh, you know, uh, announcing this uh, reconciliation effort. And uh, the person who was there was China's state councillor and former foreign minister, uh, Wang Yi, who said a statement, which I'll read, and this is a quote, this world has more than just the Ukraine question, and there are still issues affecting peace and people's lives. End of quote. So China kind of walks in here, as some people may have said, waltzes in. We didn't even hear the fact that the Iraqis and the Omanis were the ones who did it. But China takes the credit, and it, this is a slap in the U.S. Look, U.S. and West are only looking at Ukraine as if that's the only problem in peace. But here they are, and look at us. We are bringing peace and security between two very important countries. The fact that these are two very, very important countries and fueling China's economy, literally, uh, is of course uh, not mentioned, but they become the peacemakers, but it also increases their leverage inside the Middle East. So I leave it at that. If you have, you know, we can go on and then into uh, other aspects of it. I'm sorry for that long statement, but this is this is to bring us from the beginning of 1979, but specifically from 2016 until now. Uh, so the surprise is the China part. Uh, not anything else. Yeah, no, that I think that's great to lay out that background, understand the the ebb and flow of how these relations have gone. So before we get into sort of the the implications and fallout uh, from all of this, um, do you have some of the details? What are what do we know about what uh, this rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia actually contains? What is this going to do for their relations in the sort of near future, immediate future? Um, what, what sort of what, or do we do we know the details yet? Okay, uh, we, don't, we don't know a lot of details. Uh, that's that's not abnormal, and usually in this kind of confidence-building measures, rapprochements, especially in countries that are not willing to give everything. And most countries, in that case, you don't, you would not get details. This is not a if there is an agreement signed on specifics, 
you may not see that for a while, but there are certain things that we know that that, that is happening. Uh, one is, I think, for, for Saudi Arabia, for Iran, the whole issue is to, and Raisi, when he came to office, he said he wants to make Iran a peace builder, bringing in the region, expanding Iran's, he called it, relationships or influence for that matter within the region. So this is a huge victory for Mr. Raisi, President Raisi of Iran, in expanding that specifically with the most biggest rival they have. For Iran, that's number one, because Iran is suffering in a, in a, in a major way on the economic side. Iran's biggest challenge today is not the United States, in my view, nor the Israelis, it is their own people. They are having a major problem with their people, and, and if the government in Iran is capable of providing a better living standards for their people. Most likely, a lot of those people who are angry right now, the anger is 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 powerfully, in, 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 a, in a way, uh, I would say, in a, in a large part, driven by the fact that here's a country, very proud, second producer of oil within OPEC, but yet you can't even find eggs. The inflation rate is so much, it's not even counting anymore. The, the currency the real uh, is, is losing value to the point that nobody even counts anymore. So for Saudi Arabia and for Iran, this is rapprochement to bring in Iran back, bring give Iran prestige, but also open up markets. Saudi Arabia is a huge market, should that happen, also allows Iran and Saudi Arabia to cooperate at OPEC much more uh, should they want to do that. Where, and for Iran also, the third thing is to decrease the influence of the United States in the region. If they can pull Saudi Arabia, and I don't think that's happening right now, and I'll come to Saudi side. If they can pull or even bring that idea that America is, is no longer as effective or trusted in the region, that is a huge victory for Tehran. So that's, that's the Iranian side of it. For Saudi Arabia, number one and most important is Yemen. The war in Yemen was a, a major mistake on Saudi part. They went into it. Uh, when when the current Crown Prince uh, Crown Prince Mohammed was in charge of the Defense Ministry, they thought it would be a very quick victory. Uh, it's been lasting now, costing Saudis lives, prestige, money. Uh, here's the richest Arab country attacking the poorest Arab country, and this increased instability, not decreased it. And more importantly, for the Iranians, this was a boon. If you look at it as an investment, Iranians put. Five cents and they're getting a hundred dollars. The Saudis are putting a hundred and they're losing all of it. So the Iranians have managed to use Yemen at every level against the Saudis. At an attack base, destabilization of southern borders of Saudi Arabia. So in my view, I think the most important aspect is that you're gonna see a ending to the Yemen campaign. The Iranians, from what we hear in the media, is they have asked in this agreement, as you asked. Iranians have asked that the Saudis should recognize the Houthis as the government of Yemen because they have Sana'a, the capital. And should they do that or not, or they don't sign it, but they just accept it and slowly pull their troops. This is a win-win situation. The Iranians can claim victory that now they have Yemen as an ally and they got Yemen freedom, if you would. For Saudis, it's a bleeding wound that they have to stop it. And again, here again, there's a, a mistrust with the United States. Not that I think Yemen was a winnable war in any way, but they believe that their allies in Europe, United States, but specifically United States and Europe, did not help them as much as they could have to bring the Yemen war to a conclusion. Also, they lost their own Arab 
allies in there. So this is this is what 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 is going, going to happen. But the Saudi foreign minister made a, a very, very important thing right after this uh, agreement was announced. He in an interview said that his country and Iran have a joint desire, desire, you know, desire to resolve disputes through communication and dialogue. But he went on right there and said this does not mean that an agreement has been reached to resolve all pending disputes between them. So the Saudi foreign minister is very clear and eye on this. Yes, they use dialogue, they use, but this is not going to solve all the issues. Saudi Arabia and Iran have a lot of problems. One other thing I may want to add is that we have to be very, very, uh, especially in, 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 in the PME world and the, in the security side, Iran got here because they hit Saudi Arabia very hard. So for the future, we have to understand that what people call proxy, I call them part of Iran's force structure. By using untraceable or hard to trace attacks against Saudi targets inside Saudi Arabia, specifically on the oil campaign, not using explosives, but more messaging. Look, we can reach you. Next time it will have a lot more explosives. They gain, gain what they wanted. So when you look at it from a military perspective, it actually Iranian military tactics, while not grand, while not overt, have reached their point. And that is a dangerous game in the future because it could embolden Iran that by hitting countries directly or indirectly, they can reach their goals of bringing those countries to the negotiation table. So that's something that is not today your question for immediately what's in it, but this is not written there that Saudi Arabia accepted this because they were hit. But you know, if you look at it from a, a perspective of an of an analytically and long term, this is a victory, unfortunately, for the Iranian long hand or proxy warfare, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and, and just to add, just today I read it in the Iranian paper that uh, the top negotiator from Iran, who is a, a, a the secretary of the Supreme National Security Council by the name of Mr. Ali Shamhani, a very, very astute and practical and pragmatic diplomat, formerly the head of this IRGC, the Islamic Revolution Guard Corps. He's led all of that. He also speaks fluent Arabic. He comes from Fuzistan, the southern Iranian province, which is uh, Arab, uh, Iranian Arabs live there. Uh, he is actually going to UAE soon at the invitation of his counterpart in UAE. And the Iranian newspapers are saying that he's going with a large uh, delegation, including senior economic, banking, and security officials. This man is the head of national security. But the first name you get there is economic and banking. So for Iran, it, the economic aspects, they use security to force their goals, but it is to open up more markets, open up more acceptability and move on. So that's 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 what the, I think Yemen for Saudi Arabia, number one, uh, and for Iran to gain access to the markets and, and also show that, look, we can do our, we can get our way by by hitting you what they call it, the, the head in hand tactics. Uh, and then we come and you, you make peace with us. That's a, that's a very dangerous lesson for them to take away, um, unfortunately, because that- I, I agree with you, but that's, again, nobody's, this is not a bad thing. Everybody in the region has welcomed that, including the United States, by the way. It is good. If Iran and Saudi Arabia are, are working together, that is fantastic. You don't, nobody wants a conflict between these two giants in there. Uh, however, we have to caution how it got there uh, and what mechanisms were used by the Iranians to get there. One other thing that I heard that 
one of the open source material is that the Saudis, the Saudis funded a, a, a news source uh, called Iran International, which was based in, uh, still based, I think, in, in London, uh, very much active against the Iranians. And the Iranians threatened some of their uh, correspondents, if you would, and it was funded by the Saudis. Iran has asked defunding of that. I don't know if that happened or not. The only thing I know is that the government of the United Kingdom basically said they cannot, they cannot guarantee the safety of these individuals in London, so they are coming here to Washington. So that's another perhaps fallout that the Saudis not paying for anti-Iranian propaganda or information, whichever way you see, want to see it. Right. Um, okay. So before we go into what uh, sort of what the impact of this is to um, United States specifically, what are some of the larger impacts to the region? As you mentioned, you just said that you know the region, uh, Middle East region itself, they do not want a, a conflict or hostilities between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, but I think if, if I'm being fair and characterizing, one of the effects of the sort of the breakage between the two um, was a sort of a thaw between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which had uh, longstanding animosities there. But I, there had been some sort of opening up in terms of relations and I, I think travel and other things like that. So. Uh, what does this what does this do to the other countries in the region? And then what does this do to the like you? It's very hard to talk about Iran without talking about security implications to Israel as well. So what, what does that all mean? Yes. Uh, as you know, you know uh, there was a, a major uh, opening, official opening between Israel and several countries in the Gulf under what is termed as the Abraham Accords uh, under the previous administration. President Trump's administration. Uh, that was opening of uh, embassies between United Arab Emirates and Israel, Bahrain, Morocco. Morocco is not local, but also, as you say, thawing of relationship with Saudis. The Saudis did not open embassies, but the Saudis did certain things that were important. For example, allowing Israeli aircraft to cross Saudi airspace. And as we have heard again in open source material meetings, uh, and a, a movement towards establishment of relationships. The Saudis have always said they don't have the same, they have more responsibilities than say United Arab Emirates or Bahrain. And specifically, again, as, as the leader of Islamic world, they have to play the game a little bit differently. So the Saudis have always said, look, they will have open relationship with Israel when Israel accepts or looks at what they call the Arab peace plan or the Taif peace plan or Kang Abdullah peace plan, which is a plan that Saudis put on the table in 2005, uh, that it's peace for the condition of, of a Palestinian state, basically a two-state solution. Details, of course, are, are the big problem, but there is a, a peace plan, an Arab peace plan or Saudi peace plan on that. So that has been their issue, but they have been a major thought. One reason these countries went to Iran, by the way, uh, to Israel, was Iranian threat, but not only, not only, and this is key. Look, when UAE opened, and UAE-Israeli relationship is, is very warm, unlike some other relationships like with Egypt, where the security sector is pretty working very well, uh, but people to people is almost non-existent. Well, maybe Bishar al-Sheikh, but even that is becoming less attractive to Israelis because of security concerns. With UAE, it's very open. I mean, there are bar mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs being held in, in Dubai. Uh, the trade is incredible uh, at, at all levels. 
culturally, economically, high tech. That has not changed the relationship between Iran and the UAE. There are even reports today in the paper that Bahrain, the last remaining country and the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, which is the six countries of the Gulf, they are the ones who are about to follow suit and open an embassy. They have an embassy with Israel. They have a small synagogue. There's a synagogue now in, 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 uh, in Arab Emirates. So I, I think they have the negotiation between Madaba, Abu Dhabi, and Tehran is that Israeli relationship has to be kept out. With Saudis, I think this is a, if you're sitting in, in, in Israel, this is a setback. No question about it. Not about relationship between Iran and Israel and Saudi Arabia. I think that would go on whichever way it was going to go, but between Israel's concern with Iran. This empowers Iran, no question about it. So, it, but I, I want to explain something. I don't think this will hasten or prevent any movement on Israel-Saudi relationship. I don't think the Saudis would have recognized Israel. Uh, that was on the, they have other issues. Uh, in whatever relationship it is, even, actually you may even, even make them closer on, on, on uh, indirect conversations, talks, uh, even transfer of technology and so on and so forth. But if Israel looks at the world, Israel wants Iran contained, not becoming more dominant. This definitely makes Iran much more dominant. So uh, actually the Israeli opposition already has blamed the current government for failing to stop this. Uh, that's local Israeli politics. I'm not going to get into it, but but the perception in Israel right now is that this is a setback for Israel's main policy, which is containment of Iran. Because for Israel, there's only one country that they see as a having an existential threat to the Jewish state, and that's Iran. No other country in the region has the ability nor the intent to harm Israel. Yeah, harm rockets coming in from, from Gaza, but those are manageable. Whereas an Iran, a nuclear on Iran, as long as it has no nuclear weapons, that's that's manageable. But once they have nuclear weapons, it becomes a, a different trend. Uh, and also, this of course makes the United States a policy of US within the Middle East becomes more questionable. Uh, uh, you know, uh, when you look at, at a quotation from the executive director of the Washington Institute here in Washington, Mr. Rob, uh, Robert Sadloff, he said, and this is a quote, resuming ties with Iran is a dramatic expression of lack of confidence in US, end of quote. That's what the Sadloff said. So this opening, if you're in the region, you see that a lack of confidence in the US. And for Israel, that is crucial. Israel's security is dependent on that relationship with the United States, what we call the special relationship. So with that confidence on that relationship, which is not just with Israel, it is, it is holistic. The fact that we brought Israel into CENTCOM, as you remember, the, our you know, viewers would remember that Israel, until the Abraham Accords was part of the UCOM, because they wouldn't sit together and all that. So we saw a new opening and Israel is now natural, more natural location-wise, part of the central command and all that. But if there's a lack of confidence with most of those countries who work there with us, with the United States, that is not good for Israel. So I'm giving you an answer. I don't think it changes anything on the ground for the relationship, but it empowers Iran. Whether Iran can tell the Saudis not to do it, I don't think so. I don't think the Saudis are now jumping and Iran says, okay, jump, and they say, how high? Uh, they are still rivals. They will remain rivals. As long as Iran has a Shia theological system that is anti-Sunni, 
They don't say it, but they are. Was its version to be moving forward as the model, there would be a conflict with Saudi Arabia. It's just how that conflict works its way out. Uh, they have always had that since 79, but there have been periods of cooperation, understanding while that is in the background, or it's an open confrontation that we saw in 2019 and so on and so forth. I think we are going, at least with this, towards more of a competition, but not an open conflict. Okay. Either well, being a winner. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's then let's go let's go focus now on on the United States. As you just said, the implication is a a lack of confidence in the you know United States ability to I, I don't know how you would phrase it to effectively help resolve these sort of you know conflicts or competitions. So what what is sort of the larger implication here for you know not just U.S. diplomatic influence but potentially for security concerns, and then also. I don't think we want to maybe overstate, you know, the fact that there was a Chinese diplomat there at the very end getting their picture taken, but I don't want to understate it either. Like the fact was that there was a Chinese diplomat there doing that reproachment. So um, is, is there potentially a shift now in terms of uh, level of influence between the United States and China in that region from this? Look, it may also be our policy ever since the Iraq and Afghanistan war, uh, I would say since 2010, 2012, that time period. There has been this, well, I go to the Middle East a lot, from starting with 2010, 2012 time period. The first question I was asked was, what, what does the pivot mean? Remember the term now, we don't use it a lot, but this whole idea that the US is pivoting towards uh, Asia Pacific. The idea, our diplomats, our military leaders would say, no, no, we can, we can, we can, we are pivoting, but that doesn't mean we're abandoning Central Command. Are we able to show on the ground with numbers of ships, numbers of visits, numbers of assets that we are actually keeping central command or the, that area as an important part of our, our security arrangements. I don't think that's going through. Even if we are, if we can, you know, the fact that, again, our allies in there say, look, when was the last aircraft carrier that came to the Gulf? Used to come in almost on a regular basis. It was broken because partially DOD didn't want to have a predictability. Uh, we, we know that that one voyage that went instead of coming in from from to go to from UCOM to CENCOM, it went UCOM to uh, the Arctic. But now with with Ch you know China of course being front and center, and with Ukraine war now the old Cold War borders being back to as important as the United States as interested. That's the first question. If we are not, then the policy is exactly what it is. If we are, the message is not going through. That's what I'm saying. If there is actually shift, which is which is a policy that is made at the higher levels, fantastic. Then it has to be adjusting to that reality. I think what the biggest issue that I see when I travel there as an academic is confusion. There's a lot of confusion by our allies and partners. And I say allies or partners because we have both of those there. Uh, on, on what our intention is. Are we still paying attention. Yes, we are there. We have bases. We have a, you know, sent, you know, the entire fifth fleet is still uh, based in Bahrain. We have, we have a major air base in, in, in Qatar. Uh, we have assets in Kuwait and so on and so forth. But is it, if, if we are there, the message is not coming through. This is the key. At the same time, there's also this idea that the United States is not as interested in oil, which is a fact. I think that's a blessing. As an American, I say this is a blessing if we are not dependent on Middle East oil. And that's the key. 
I mean, just now, yesterday, President Biden signed a, a agreement for, for Alaska. They part in, you know, the willow. That alone has incredible amount of potential of oil right here in our own backyard. And we can either come through the sea or go through a very, very nice ally in Canada. Not all the trouble. So if we have that, China doesn't have that. These are realities. You have to look at the future for us. I, I see this as a blessing, but if it is the reality, then how we adjust the security part of it, it's not just oil. These are not gas pumps. We cannot look at Saudi Arabia or any of those countries as gas pumps. So now this is a question where China comes in. China, Saudi Arabia and UAE are the most important countries for China when it comes to oil, by far. And this is why the Chinese have been very careful to not irk them at the expense of Iran. They signed. Last year, they signed a, what is, we haven't seen the, the official version, but a, a 25 year strategic agreement with Tehran, which includes bringing Iran a total, you know, part of the one look, one built, one road, or some people call it Bills and Roads Initiative, investments, long term investments, port access, and JASC specifically, which is right outside of the Strait of Hormuz and the open uh, seas. All of that is the future of China. Once China establishes all of that in the 10 years time period, then China has access directly if they can come in through Pakistan, if Afghanistan gets stabilized or through the Central Asian countries, Turkmenistan, they will have a direct access, land access to all this material as we are looking all of our assets in South China Sea. The United States will not have anything, not a single base or asset in Central Asia, we left Afghanistan, obviously, that opens up. So that for China is long term, Then they will, because they will need that gas and oil, no matter how much technology comes in and you, know, you get the renewables for the ability for the engines we have for the next foreseeable future, oil and gas batteries is cheap, it's easy. If we don't need it, the Chinese will be there. But today, for the next four or five years, China will not abandon its relationship with Saudi Arabia and the UAE over Iran. And they showed that with Mr. Xi, as I just told you, was in, in Riyadh in December. He made a statement that drove the Iranians absolutely nuts. And he endorsed, there's a statement that usually the GCC makes about the three islands that were part of UAE. Iran has taken them. Iran claims them as part of their own territory. They're Abu Musa and Tun, uh, the greater and lesser Tums. This is an ongoing dispute between UAE and, and Iran. And a statement always is made by the GCC for Iran to reach a amicable agreement to and the Chinese president endorse that. The Iranians actually went absolutely nuts. So the Chinese are playing a balancing role right now to make sure that their main two partners today, partners that can actually are not sanctions, that are capable of producing oil and gas, which is Saudi Arabia and UAE in that order, are kept okay, but then they're playing this game of, of the good guy, the peacemakers. The Chinese also have something else. Don't forget, Chinese Communist Party and the Iranian Ayatollahs are very much the same, as far as I see it. They are dictatorial, they have higher power. One is God, one is Communist Party. Nobody touches them. They're there for life now. They're both historical countries. They have never attacked each other. China doesn't interfere in their internal affairs. So eventually, I think you see a Chinese Iranian strategic partnership. Right now, it is China looking forward. Whether China wants to replace us, I don't think so, because it's a lot of mess. They want the Chinese are much more, they want to gain, they're more predatory to me. We got in there and we guaranteed, we gave the Middle East more of a 
a partnership, that now we seem to be not being there as much, it's irking them. And I don't think the Saudis are giving up on, on us. At the end of the day, the Saudis will trust us more, even with all of our lack of uh, stability in our world. I mean, you saw a, a op-ed that came out from the Saudis, uh, I think in one of the local papers, not local here, I think it was in New York. I, I forgot what New York Times or, or Wall Street Journal or something like that, that they basically asked for security guarantees. Some people say, again, open sources, the Saudis want a nuclear guarantee that the United States gives, gives them that the umbrella, not actual nuclear weapons, obviously, but these are big, why are this? Because we have not been predatory. Some people think we have been, but we haven't been. We haven't taken their soil, when they have asked us to leave, we have left. I think they understand that. They understand that at the end of the day, the United States is trustworthy and it's worth, what if we are not trustworthy in their view is our commitment to keep like, for example, when Saudi Arabia was attacked, we didn't do anything. What could we could have done? I don't know, but in their view, we did not. We were not there to support them or give them a missile defense, you know, a anti-missile or anti-drone defense that they perhaps thought that should have been brought in. So you see, it's more complicated. I don't think that they are jumping in the Chinese ship today. Uh, they seem to be more comfortable with the Chinese. Uh, part of it is, you know, what you're you're very angry at your your old friend. And, and you're coming, making it, and I don't want to diminish this in any way, and, and, and there's no disrespect, but you're kind of opening up the new guy and say, look, I have other partners, but you still are opening up saying, look, the doors are open. I think our doors are still open, whether they'll be open forever, I don't think so. And the question is whether we, the United States, is, has interest there as much as we used to have. I don't know. So long, long, long way to say uh, that, as, as the, some people say, the Middle East is complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah, well, as you describe it there, you know, what you just went through, I think that's a, a very human and, and understandable dynamic, right? Like you have a partner you've trusted for a while, you know, whether it's at the nation state level or, you know, a personal, um, you know, interaction, like sometimes you do things to try and get the, you know, somebody's attention back, right? Like you don't want to, necessarily hurt them or cause a break. But if you feel like you haven't been paid attention to, you're going to do things to try and get back the attention that you think you deserve. Um, right. And some, sometimes that works positively and sometimes it does not. Yeah, I guess we'll see. But I, as we're talking through this, I think also maybe some point in the future, we'll have to get um, Dan Rice on here to sort of do a, a uh, from the Chinese perspective, what do they think that they're going to be able to get out of this? And uh, in terms of a good idea, look, I'm not a China expert. I do not read Mandarin. I've never been to China. I only see China when it comes to my part of the world and I see what they do uh, and the reaction from the locals. So that would be very good to to see a, a, a balance in the sense of what the Chinese are looking at. That I see the numbers uh, and I can analyze that. But that is a very good point to, to bring in a Chinese perspective, how they regard their relationship long term and short term. With, with this part of the world. Uh, again, the Chinese don't have a willow. This is this is, this is is a good thing for us, not a bad thing that we, uh, also they don't have a neighbor like Canada. They have Russia, well, they have Russia. They can get stuff from Russia, but we have a, a, a very, I mean, a very, very nice neighbor. And on the other side of it, we have Alaska, which, uh, you know, has, some, apparently has a lot of uh, oil and gas beyond the, you know, fracking and all that. It's much, much more accessible from what I hear. Again, I'm not looking at trying to under, you know, down 
great uh, environmental or whatever, but it is a sign that I think is going to happen. Uh, it, it, it will be a, again another game changer in the side and the freedom of the United States from it. Freedom does not mean it means that we are not we become different partners, maybe even better partners. So we look at security as a whole on how how to contain China or Russia. You know, we doesn't talk about Russia. Russia is a, a a major player there, specifically with Iran. All of this will have effects as it goes because if we are going to go, I know nobody wants to talk about the Cold War, but it's whatever we want to call it, we may call it cold uh, competition or whatever the name will come out later on. As we moving in that, uh, with China and China-Russia China relationship and Russia's future, uh, I personally think uh, the Middle East, as we call it, will continue to matter in a major way. If we even, we don't need it, we don't need the products from there. It's what we need is to make sure that those, how are those products used? By whom, who, who gets there? Of course, you mentioned Israel, security of Israel is a paramount importance for us. Uh, so all of that matters as we move on. So as, 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 as we say, stay tuned to more episodes. Yes, indeed. And, you know, I, I think we still owe our audience at some point a, a triple crown with, you know, yourself and Dan and you all, all talking about how all those different players interact in there, because it's very, it's very, you can't really sort of look at one really without the others. Um, you know, I'd say, especially today with recent, uh, with these recent developments. So we'll have to get that on the calendar at some point, uh, because we keep saying we'll do it. And, uh, haven't quite got there yet, but we should because we have access to all of you gentlemen who can provide these perspectives. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, we're coming up in about an hour here. Any final thoughts you'd like to share, Dr. Tarzi, before we wrap well, up? I, I th thank you for, for doing this special one in, the, in a very short notice. I know uh, as the Chinese, I don't want to quote the Chinese and say, look, the U.S. seems to be very focused, uni-focused almost uh, on, on Ukraine. There's a lot of world out there beyond Ukraine. And as much as I am you know, I'm a supporter of Ukraine without any question, and, and we need to do what we can. As a leader in the world, we cannot afford to be unidirectional. It's going to cost us. Uh, whether that's Ukraine or even China, that everybody looks at China. We have to, uh, I know it's, it's harder, it's more more, more difficult, more uh, costly, but uh, just to keep an attention, at least to, to, to have an understanding and, and communication uh, at, at different levels. Uh, in, at the PME level, which is what I do, I, I'm only a teacher, uh, to make yourselves understand what the other side says. That's my last one. Don't assume what the Saudi Arabia or United Arab Emirates, or even these are friends of ours, but even the Iranians, it's good to listen to them. There's nothing wrong in listening. Uh, that's what education is. You listen to the other side. You don't have to agree with them. You just listen. With that, I yield. Thank you. Great. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Tarzi. That's a, I think a good point to end on here for us. So, Dr. Amin Tarzi, uh, Director of Mobility Studies, thanks for uh, for coming on. Yeah, kind of short notice, but that is one of the benefits of having access, quick access to um, to folks like yourself. And, you know, the fact that we can do this all in-house means we can we can react and give insights, you know, sort of in the moment to these things as they happen and then share them with the audience. So, uh, appreciate your time. We'll get this one out here probably today. Um, we'll get around to it. And then, uh, yeah, we still definitely need to get you and Dan and you all together for, for a big party. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah we, do, we, do, we do a big party, and and, and uh, that would be, that would be a good one, I think, especially now. I mean, if uh, I'm not going to come back, but the movements on the Iran nuclear, which is becoming important, that's kind of the 900-pound gorilla on the room. Whatever you talk Middle East, we also Russia's transfer of certain technologies that is happening apparently. 
uh, that would change that pat that whole calculation of Iran's delivery systems and all that. I think those are, are immediate things that will have an impact, security impact beyond Israel, but but as far as Iran's concerned, more immediate on Israel, but it will have beyond. As we saw, we talked about that Iran uses different types of, of military action, uh, overt or covert, uh, to push its agenda. Uh, that is, a, that, I think that's a learning issue that we have to keep on thinking about how to mitigate it, uh, and, and, or how to how to how to understand it first, uh, and then how to make sure that we have a a, a way of reacting to. Okay, yeah, and, that, and that's a great another great point. Like the, these different issues really can't be looked at in isolation because all of these different countries and you know political organizations they're helping each other do these different things for their own interests. So. Uh, yeah, we, we need to do a, a big old episode with all of you on there and just try and unwind the ball of yarn as best we can. Well, great. Thanks, Dr. Thank Tarzi, again. Bye-bye. And uh, we'll see you later. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Crew Lack community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.